Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. Happy August. Many of our MTCA students are deeply emerged in our college faculty masterclass this week as this episode is released. So I'm sending some love and well wishes to all of them. May you joyfully play and discover some great stuff in those rooms. For any of you who have yet to join the MTCA family, I will say now is a really great time. If you're a senior, meeting us in the next few weeks is really crucial. We meet seniors through the fall and even into the winter, but there's a lot more we can do to help if we meet you now as opposed to, say, in October. And for junior families and younger, we'd love to meet you this fall as well. Certainly the urgency of right now isn't there in the same way it is for seniors, but meeting in the fall of your junior year is an excellent time to plan out the year and help this process go as smoothly as possible. If you meet us now, you might not begin intensively coaching immediately, but you can make a game plan that matches your goals and budget. Okay, enough shilling for MTCA. I think you're going to enjoy this episode with Shakina Nafak. She is a really special performer and a creative force. We talk in the show about her helping develop a strange loop, which has since went on to win the Tony Award, amazing, as well as her awesome performing career. Um, and we are coming back with new episodes in just a few short weeks as well. We're arbitrarily calling it season two when we return, so I hope you enjoy these last few bits of what has become season one um, before some really exciting artists and college episodes that we've already begun recording. But for now, this episode with Shakina Nafak. Welcome to Mapping the College Audition, a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. I'm your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA, that's Musical Theater College Editions to you, bucko, and today we have a trailblazing show lined up for you. Uh, Shakina Nafak is a longtime friend of my partner and a newer friend and new neighbor of mine. Um, I am just so impressed by her and how she navigates the world with grace and empathy and how much her artistry and intelligence shines through everything she does. Um, today on the pod, we talk about forging a path around your interests and passions and all the many degrees and educational paths that Shakina took. It's a lot. Um, viewing herself as more of a director than an actor, especially because of who she was in the world and didn't feel like she she saw herself represented there. Um, we talk about the quintessential NYC experience, Shakina creating her own work in a tiny midtown studio of dubious repute. Um, we talk about uh, social media advice, um, and this Shakina gives the, the phrase digital self-harm, which I thought was really interesting. I haven't heard that before. Um, we talk in some difficult interactions. How do you come from a place of compassion and forgiveness um, in terms of how do you call someone in? Um, Shakina gives some advice on a writing exercise, story time with Shakina, uh, and some really cool advice of how to find comedy in difficult situations um, as you're writing about that. We also talk about the idea of theater being to agitate and what it is to develop your own ethic. We also do all of that while I am bouncing a baby on my chest <laughs> who stayed asleep the entire episode. We're very proud of her. I was sure about halfway through the episode I was going to have to pop out and move her to our babysitter, but somehow she has made it through the entire episode. So we're all very proud of her. Round of what applause. What a star. What a star. What a star. Um, but before we get too deep into the episode today, Megan, happy Thanksgiving. How are you doing? What are you grateful for this week? Oh, thanks, Charlie. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Um, well, what I'm thankful for this year is everyone getting back together. Um, mm. Most of my family is, uh, well, all my family is double vaxxed and most of my family is triple vaxxed. So it's mm. all very exciting and vaccinated celebrations. <laughs> it does become a little bit of like a, a competition, right? I'm, are you double? I'm triple. Oh, I'm quadruple. I'm triple. I, I've been cheating. You know, people like to really throw <laughs> them in there. Of course. But all my cousins and my siblings have been having lots of children over the years. <laughs> I know that you can relate. So we just got together and there are nine girls all under the age of four. Oh and it's the God. first time that they have either met each other or had like the actual capability of playing with each other. Hmm. So that just happened this past weekend. So that was a lot of fun to see them. And so I'm excited for some more Thanksgiving food. Uh, 
tomorrow if you're listening on the drop date. Heck yeah. That's where Megan is just doing some time machine work for you. Mm -hmm. Um, We love a gratitude practice. It's like one of the things that like from the sort of frou-frou granola world of of theater that I just have loved so much. I'm like the idea of, of spending some time doing a gratitude practice, it like actually makes you a happier, healthier person. So I recommend it to everyone um, if that's something you want to do. More than just once a year too. More than just once a year. You don't have to wait till uh, Thanksgiving. Megan, I will say I'm very grateful for you. Um, It's been really special getting to do this podcast with you. And and I'm so grateful to have you as an assistant and a producer of this pod. Um, I'm grateful for our great students who have inspired me this very challenging year um, for our wonderful listeners of the podcast and their great feedback. Uh, and also for my health and the health of my young family, both newly nuclear and extended, <laughs> which is like such a weird thing, by the way, Megan. Like now when I say my nuclear family, I mean these three people, which like all Strange. the way through your life, I mean my brothers and my dad and my mom. Like it's like you mean those people and then it changes the branches of the tree and you become a new nuclear pod. It's very weird. Um <laughs> But also, and then I put, I'm grateful for this year to it's like what you said in terms of a little bit of hope coming into the world, some new possibilities and, and new aspirations in, in 2022 um, that felt very difficult to be possible in the past couple of years. I'm really looking forward to them. I feel like a little bit of competition to me, if we're going back to our sports analogies of this podcast, that oh, yeah. you had time to write down a list and I just went off my top yeah, of my hat. I and, I wanna, and I want to extend my gratitude back to you and MTCA to do all these wonderful things that I'm able to do this year. Mm. You're so sweet. Okay. Well, enough lovey-dovey. Let's get into Mm -hmm. this interview with Shakina. Well, we are so honored to have Shakina Nafak on the pod today. Uh, Shakina is an actress, a writer, and an activist. She has a BA from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and an MFA and PhD from the University of California, Riverside. That MFA being in experimental choreography and the PhD in critical dance studies, which I can't wait to talk about on the pod today. Um, Alongside being a Broadway actress, she's also been on TV a lot. Uh, She recently made television history as the first transgender person to be cast as a series regular on a network sitcom as Ellis on Connecting. She's also Lola on Difficult People. She was in the Transparent Musical Finale, which she helped write and produce. She's also the founding artistic director of the Musical Theater Factory in New York City, where she helped develop hundreds of new musicals, including Michael R. Jackson's Pulitzer Prize winning A Strange Loop, and her own autobiographical glam rock odyssey, Manifest Pussy. Uh, Shakina is currently developing a television pilot based on her life story, and she's the director and co-creator of Junk a Rock Opera, which is a new Broadway-bound show written by Swedish rock band Brainpool and developed with Shakina. Shakina... We try to cut the bios down. We try to make them as small as possible. That was that was the cut down version. I could not do any less than that. How are you doing? Welcome on the pod today. I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so excited to dive into this fabulous career of yours, but I'd love if we actually can take a step back a little bit and start with you as a young person. So maybe when that theater dream started for you, I'd love to think, especially educationally, if and when you knew this is what I might want to do for my life. What did that young person think in terms of here's how I want to forge an educational path for myself? Well, you know, I think my my first inkling was like honestly like as early as third grade when I got to be a part of like the school play and um, and we got to get out of class to go to rehearsal. And I was like, this is the dream. And I also loved we had this like old British drama teacher named Miss Nichols, um, who made us do these warm ups like, I am the king. This is my castle. What a beautiful throne. And I was like, not only did I want to be an actor, but I thought I wanted to be a drama teacher. Like, I loved what uh-huh. she did. And uh-huh. so, for a long time, I always like then when I got to high school and high school was kind of a riot for me, literally and figuratively, um, you know, I always sort of saw myself as both a a maker and an educator. And and that mm-hmm. was a really big part of my young life in, in, in terms of my goals. And did you see as you looked at colleges, you saw I'm going to potentially maybe write, I'm going to maybe be a drama teacher. Did you think I might be this fabulous professional Broadway actress? Uh, well, actually, you know, because the 
the the times were different then. Uh, I, you know, I finished high school in the late 90s and I actually I dropped out of several high schools because it was just not a safe space for queer youth at the time. And while I was like trying uh, riotously, as I said, to make those schools that I was in safer for queer youth, um, it really took a toll on me. And creatively, I knew that uh, at that point that I, I thought I wanted to be a director because I didn't see a place for myself as a like still at the time closeted trans person, but someone who knew that I just didn't I didn't fit in my body and I didn't I, I stopped seeing myself on stage, even though like the last role I had played in, in high school was a production of Mary Wives of Windsor. And I played Falstaff, this like big bumbling you know, machismo dude. And, mm -hmm. um, and I was like, yeah, that's just not really for me, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I thought that I would have more success as a director, which kind of like took my, my educational impulses in a, in a new way. Um, and when I, honestly, I didn't think I was going to be able to go to college. Like I, because mm -hmm. of the, you know, the, um, the hardship that I had in, in the high schools that I went to, um, I really got to college by like the skin of my teeth. And um, I had finished high school from I, I had started in like a private Catholic school and then like went to a few independent studies, went to a public school that had a school for the arts housed within it. That didn't work either. Um, it was actually like more homophobic and transphobic than the private school. And um, so when when it was time to apply for colleges, first of all, my mom threw out my NYU application because she just didn't want me going across the Too country. Expensive? Oh, no. Joe, no, she just didn't trust me, you know, because I was such a maniac at the time. Um, and uh, and so the only school that I got into, I think, was UC Santa Cruz, which is where I went, mm -hmm. which was that year, for some reason, accepting any student who had a 3.0 GPA or above who applied. And I had like a 3.1 and I got in. And <laughs> um, and I, I think I had also got into like UC Santa Barbara or something. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, um I went up to Santa Cruz and like looked at the campus and it, it's this beautiful like redwood forest on the coast. It's like, what could you not love about it's like going to school in Ewok village. It's so gorge. <laughs> and, um, but Santa Cruz didn't have musical theater. Uh -huh. Um, they have a theater program and they have a music program. Um, and my like great love was musicals. And so when I got there, I kind of didn't know what I was going to do. And, mm -hmm. um, it ended up being, I mean, we could talk about it. I, I, I cobbled together a really unconventional way through that degree program. Well, I love it. And, and I have so many questions for you, especially getting the professional career of the ways you've kind of blazed the trail and forged your own path, something we love on this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I'd love to hear. So, so now as you're piecing it together a little bit um, in your undergrad, what then leads you to these very specific and interesting postgrad degrees of the MFA and the PhD? Yeah, I mean, I'll try and summarize it pretty quickly, which is that um, I I felt like I had so much that I needed to um, make sense of as an artist and as a young queer person. Um, and I was like learning about becoming an activist and because I, I was forced into that in my young life. Mm -hmm. And um, and I felt like when I was in the theater program, I was like, none of these kids get what I've been through. And mm -hmm. at Santa Cruz, there's this program called Community Studies, which is like the history and theory and practice of activism. And it's an experiential learning program where you actually like have to go out into the world and do the thing you're studying. And they have a track in that program called Cultural Work and Social Change, which in, for them, cultural work could imply making documentary films, doing theater or music. And so I realized that what I was going to do was kind of create a degree for myself around theater and performance as activism. And mm -hmm. so I really didn't follow the conventional path. I minored in theater at my school so I could still like learn and be part of things. But I was um, mostly focused on doing actual work with like other queer youth uh, across the country using performance. And that's sort of when I, I came out as trans and was like a considered myself a transgender performance artist that was using my platform to create change and dialogue. And I actually went from being like a four-time high school dropout to finishing my BA in three years. And because um, I had something to prove, you know, I was like hitting it hard. But then high school at dropout the same to time, PhD. that's a jump. Yeah, exactly. Jump. Exactly. But so also at Santa Cruz, they had this, this, what they called the fifth year graduate certificate in theater. And it was for people who had technically majored in theater, but were wanted to stay an extra year and do like a, a special focus. Mm -hmm. So I applied to that fifth year as my fourth year uh, mm -hmm. to, so I could direct 
um, my own show. And, um, and I had this like thesis project that was sort of like, I was going to create something from the ground up. And just then 9-11 happened. And I was like, I have to figure out how to respond to this as an artist and an activist. And um, through like a, a lot of bizarre, you know, fortuitous circumstances, I came in touch with this dance form called Buto, which is a, a Ankoko Buto, a Japanese dance form known as the Dance of Darkness. It's very avant-garde, started in the 60s. And I was like obsessed with using this dance form as a way to respond to 9-11. And I created this whole theater piece about it. And mm. it was like very aggressive and and very like humanist and raw and Artodian. And then um, and then I applied to all these MFA programs in directing where I was like, I love Buto, I want to use Buto, and none of them knew what to do with me. Mm. So um, so I vowed like, okay, if I if I don't get into any of these MFA programs, I'm just gonna go like study Bouton on my own. And I I had this dance teacher who I had connected with who's in Mexico who teaches body ritual movement, which was like a fusion of Ancoco Bouton in, from Japan where he studied and also indigenous Mexican ritual and modern dance. And so I spent a lot of time with him like studying and training in Mexico. And then I was down there and I was like, this is so amazing, the, the cultural fusion, the fact that I'm this like trans Jewish American in Mexico studying Japanese avant-garde ritual dance. Someone should like write a book about this. And I was like, well, no one's gonna write a book about this except for maybe me. Except and for you, so, exactly. yeah. So then I applied uh, first to the PhD program at UC Riverside in dance, just to be like, how do I articulate what's going on mm -hmm. here? And when I was in that program, I was like, I'm gonna go crazy if all I can do is read books and not be in the studio making things. So I applied to the master's program in choreography while I was already a PhD student and did both at the same time, which I don't think they'll ever allow students to do again. There was like one other colleague of mine that did it as well. And um, yeah, so I ended up getting this uh, this MFA in experimental choreography, which was really about like bringing sort of Buto and musical theater together. And then writing this dissertation about my journey as a, as a pre-transition trans person tra using dance to kind of like work through their body and gender while engaging with a community that was having their own experience of redevelopment um, after kind of like colonial uh, exploitation. So it was sort of like how our, whatever, it's very academic, but basically I was interested in how we redevelop ourselves after this experience of, of trauma, whether it's yeah. community-wide or personally. I love that. And, you know, so often our students, um, especially a lot of our students who maybe have been training technically for a while, are looking for that kind of deeper, unique artistic cultivation that an educational experience can give them and that you have found for yourself and cultivated for yourself so beautifully. Are, is there anything during those years now that you're doing from a more technical perspective as like a singer, as an actor to keep up, you know, like I imagine if you're like, I still might want to sing in musicals or maybe not at this point. Is that not a possibility? Oh, no. I mean, voice I lessons. Are you doing that kind of thing? I don't take voice lessons regularly. I take voice lessons like when I need a coaching for an audition or a piece of material. Um, but I do still teach and practice this idea of bringing Butoh to, to musical theater, which mm -hmm. is just like a really embodied way for me of inhabiting a song and a character and performing a song in such a way that I feel like every moment of every breath is kind of choreographed internally. And, um, and I can be really in charge of how I am expressing and and communicating energetically through the performance of a song. So I teach master classes in that kind of song interpretation uh, at NYU, at, at Berkeley, uh, New York City, at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center and the mm -hmm. National Musical Theater Institute. Um, and, it, and it's something that I put into play, like in every audition that I do in the real world, I still break it down through my sort of like buto beats, you know, the mm -hmm. way that I have come to understand my craft. I love it. And and that that in Butoh is both a dance and a singing technique or as you learned it it was were were you were you sort of creating that for yourself of going how do I apply this to my singing how do I apply this to my acting? Exactly. So cool. Yeah, it's a it's a dance technique, but it's more than a dance technique. It's more like a philosophy of engaging with like your body and the environment and the beyond. It's very mm -hmm. like esoteric and ritual and um and so I've sort of found my, for myself a way to kind of create a map through um, either monologues or songs or even scenes using the kind of convention of beat work that we understand from 
you know, our traditional acting training, um, but then kind of layering atop that the the philosophical approach of um, sort of integrating energies from the environment and from our our personal histories and um, bringing emotional embodied memory into that path and and um, yeah, it, it results in really uh, powerful performances. Okay, we're gonna try to play a silly college flashback game. It sounds like you were very busy in your educational experience, but I'm gonna see, did you have time for some of this fun stuff that we're gonna try Probably to Probably so, to, yeah, to yeah. Play? We'll see. Um, we're gonna put 60 seconds on the clock, and okay. in 60 seconds, we wanna see how many answers you can spit out. Doesn't have to be genius, just have to give, give an answer. The total, we just had the record set at 14. Someone got 14 answers in 60 okay. seconds. So wow, that's okay. the mark to beat. Okay. All right, Megan, are we ready? Six seconds on the clock. We are ready. Six, seven, eight. Hardest class for you in school? Uh, uh, in humanistic psychology. Social butterfly or bookworm? Social butterfly. Did you kiss anyone in your class? Yes. Messy roommate, clean roommate? Uh, messy made them clean. Classmate you learned the most from? Uh, um, uh, this guy named Marcus who was like a hippie and a genius. Shout out Marcus. Worst fashion choice that you made? Um, uh, newsboy hats. Uh, the most fun college ritual you took part in? 420. <laughs> Do you ever cheat on a test? No. Uh, most surprising college casting? Um, uh, my first drag performance. Um, ever lose a library book? Probably. <laughs> Song that was blasting from your dorm room at school? Uh, anything by Ani DeFranco. And that's time. Anything by Ani DeFranco. How did you make your roommate become clean? Because Elizabeth would like some tips if that's a possibility. You know how <laughs> well, to do um, yeah. So, you know, I had a couple different roommates and uh, at different times. And for one of them, I remember very clearly our dorm room was like so messy. And then I came back from winter break like a, a two days before them. And they were actually one of my best friends of all time. And we were living together in college. And I just like totally redid the dorm. And when they came home, I was like, everything in its place. And that was like my motto, everything in its place. So like, <laughs> I, it was like totally, I had like lofted the bed and moved in a couch from one of the lounges and like really like did it up. And then I was like, as long as everything goes back where it started, like we're always gonna be good. And then the other kind of mantra that, um, that we had once I moved into a house off campus was like, it only takes a minute. And we would just say that like <laughs> doing the dishes, like cleaning up a spill, it only takes a minute, like just get it done. So, yeah. We're just going to keep this soundbite for Elizabeth to play when Charlie doesn't do the it dishes. It only takes a minute. Just, just, just <laughs> it only takes a minute. Everything in its place. Hey, let's be honest. I'm most of our yeah. cleanup crew at this point. Let's be honest. That's what happens. You become a dad and you just become a cleanup crew. That's the truth of the I think that's probably real. Yeah. <laughs> um, w the votes have been tabulated. How did we do, Megan? Ten. Ten? Okay. A respectable ten. That was the old record for a long time. Yeah. Before some of these competitive people get in here and just... Yeah, town. no, sure. Um, there was a college ritual at Santa Cruz that I wish I participated in, which is the first rain ritual, um, which I don't know if it still happens, but at Santa Cruz on the first rain, most of the student body, at least in the college that I was at, there's several colleges on the campus, would get naked and like run around and dance in the rain and like streak across campus. Yes. And I, as like a budding trans person, was just not like cool enough in my body mm -hmm. at the time. But um, if I had to do it over again, I would absolutely strip down and run in the rain. There could be, we could, there could be an alumni event. We could go back. That, you know, <laughs> maybe so. 20 years, 25, whatever the thing is, I'm going. I'm going to run in the rain. <laughs> um, what about if you, you imagining now you're, you know, you now teach at, not imagining, you do teach at um, a number of universities. What are some things that you really feel like you're trying to impart to young people now that you go, okay, I've, I've learned this through my experience and now I really want to, you know, when I'm teaching at NYU, what, what am I trying to give um, to young artists that I wish I had? There's two things that I think are really important, especially for like this younger generation that I noticed that that there's like a hunger for and, and a need for. One is like flexing the muscle of imagination that I mm -hmm. think like it's my job when I'm doing arts education is just to like remind young people the freedom that they have to imagine and like what mm -hmm. they can do with that capacity. Um, I also think that it's important to help students find a personal ethic around the work that they make and engage in. I think there's a lot of sort of like cultural mandates, societal mandates about what is right and what is wrong and what we should be doing and saying and what we shouldn't be doing and saying. And I think there's actually a lot more gray area, but it's really up to each individual student to kind of determine for themselves, you know, how they want to relate with and engage with 
you know, complex, controversial, uh, deeply emotional, personal material. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think just as an art maker, those two things, you know, having a strong imagination muscle and having a strong personal ethic are the things that are really going to help you when you get out into the real world and you have to make hard decisions about the kind of artist you want to be. I love it. And we're gonna, I've got a whole bunch more questions about that kind of stuff. Cannot wait. But before we leave school, um, just is there anything else that you wish in your educational path? If you could go back and do it differently, is there anything else you go, ooh, I would have seized this opportunity. I wish I'd, I'd, I'd squeezed a little more juice out of this um, lemon that was in front of me. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a part of me that regrets not being steeped in the canon as problematic as the canon might be. Um, I feel like you because mean the of the way canon? For the in musical theater and, yeah. and you know, dramatic plays mm-hmm. um, that I like, you know, I wish that I had read more plays and musicals in college just to understand the foundation that I was going to build on later because I had to uh-huh. go back and do a lot of that. Um, afterwards. And at the time, I think I was so busy with like my social justice quests that I I couldn't Uh rationalize also like going into the archives of history. But now I understand that those two things, the contemporary quests for social justice and understanding where we came from go hand in hand. Uh, So such good advice. That's something I think another guest said that of like, finding the, if you're going to be subversive, you have to kind of know what you're being subversive against. Where where, where are you making the twist away from? Otherwise, you'll end up sort of reinventing what's already potentially happened. Ethan, um, Ethan Slater said that. That Ethan Slater, Slater. Thank you, Megan, for being on that. That's right. Um, for our regular listeners who who catch them all. Um, let's take a really short break. Um, we'll do some ads, make some moolah for this podcast, um, and then we'll jump on into another game and some more deeper conversations. My God. Sounds good. Sell it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> All right, we are back with Shakina. We're just talking about I'm, this entire time. I'll let you listeners know I'm, I've been bouncing a baby on my chest while we've been doing uh, the podcast, and there's been a lot of comedy internally for us um, as we've been doing this. Um, but we have a new game. We make up a new game with each guest, Shakina. And since Ooh. your career has been so wonderfully trailblazing, we thought we'd play a trailblazer game. Okay, oh, gosh. so this is a simple trivia game. But all the answers have either the word trail or the word blazer in them, or some version of blaze. Okay. Trail or blaze. It's going to be in the answer. Trail or blaze. Okay. We can totally do this. A couple questions. Most of them are easy. Some of them are impossible. So good luck. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, (sighs) I'm looking for Portland's basketball team, the NBA team that lives in Portland. They are? Uh, The blaze. Very good guess. The Trail Blazers. That was the okay, one. Okay, that, that was really the easy. There is a sports team called the Blaze somewhere. I believe that is true. It might be hockey. I don't know. I'm making I that think, up. Okay, great. Popular, popular millennial computer game during computer lab. Uh, Oregon Trail. 100% right. Oregon That's easier Trail. for okay, me than anything we're, about sports. Yeah. Yeah, the sports one, I knew that would either be easy or hard, depending if how much. Okay. Um, Mel Brooks, satirical Western from the 70s. Um, Blazing Saddles. That is 100% correct. We're back on the board. We're doing great. Okay, great. Okay. This word means to lag behind in a sporting competition. More sports? Uh, no, to trail? To trail is correct. A team okay. is trailing. Okay, more sports for you. LeBron James backed Uh-oh. pizza chain. This is a pizza chain owned by LeBron James. Mm, I don't know. No, I don't know. Bla- blazing pizza. That's 100% correct. Is Blaze Pizza is the correct answer. What? Blaze Pizza is correct. I started running out. After two or three, I didn't have a lot left that I could do. Okay. This this is a word which you were going to know too well from your college ritual. Another word for the act of smoking cannabis. Yeah, to blaze. To blaze. Absolutely true. Okay. A popular snack for hiking that tries to be healthy, but somehow you have M&Ms in there somewhere. Yeah, trail mix, not healthy. That's, that's a trail mix. We 100% agree. Okay. What... Hansel and Gretel left behind them, much to their chagrin. A 
Trail of breadcrumbs. That trail of breadcrumbs. Okay, here we go. And now the easiest one of them all. <laughs> famous, famous 17th century mathematician and philosopher known for his work on probability and game theory. Um, Blaise Trail. Oh, that was so good. So close. Blaise Pascal is the person. Oh, Pascal. Up with Pascal's wager. Uh, which sure. I, had to, I had to Google that. I would not have known that. Let's be clear. But you've won our trailblazing game. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Much fun. Much I'm reward. so re- was- I'm so relieved. Now I can like breathe again. <laughs> Games stress me out. I don't know why. Well, now we do the harder questions. Now the hard questions come. Great. Um, before we get too deep, though, I'd love to hear a little bit. So now you've graduated. I imagine you're still in California having graduated. I am. Not yeah. Just happened. At some point, you're going to come here and sort of get your career off the ground. How does that happen? How do those first couple steps happen? Yeah. You graduated with it, all these degrees. You know, what, what, how do yeah, you so, make it happen? So interesting that you brought up Junker Rock Opera in my introduction because I, I developed a lot of musicals in my day. I'm still developing a lot of musicals in my day. And Junk has been like the show that's been with me for literally decades. Um, but it's a show that I started working on when I was in grad school. I actually took a year mm. off from grad school to to do a workshop and a showcase production in Los Angeles. And it became this like cult hit and um, ran for like 16 weeks and extended and was just like, you know, really made the most of like the the like L.A. small theater scene. And then I was like, all right, I've done that. I've hit my glass ceiling. Like I can't actually get any better than that in L.A. because there's some like major like Lort theaters, you know, um, out there but there's sort of like no in between between like the 99 seat small theaters and then these like major institutions Mm -hmm. and I was like well the only way I'm going to grow as a theater director is to go to New York City and so uh, I first applied for um, an SDC the stage directors and choreographers society observership with Michael Mayer when he was directing on a clear day you can see forever Mm -hmm. on Broadway and I had met Michael when he was directing uh, American Idiot at Berkeley Rep because I was working on a rock opera and he was working on a rock opera and I had a friend in the show and I emailed him on Facebook and I was like, hey, I'm just like a young rock opera maker. Can we get a coffee? And I like went up to Berkeley and like had a meeting with him. Anyway, did the observership and then I applied to the Drama League Directors Project, uh, which um, put me in residence at Barrington Stage Company, mm-hmm. where I became the associate producer for uh, two seasons after my first fellowship year. And after that first fellowship year, you know, when I moved to um, Pittsfield, Massachusetts for the summer, um, which is incidentally where I met Elizabeth Stanley, um, I, um, I just, I was like, literally Annie, it was like three bucks, two bags, one me. I went from that summer internship and and moved to the city with, with um, no plan other than to try and make it, you know? And, and at that point I didn't conceive myself as an actor at all. I was just a director. Huh. Did you have any delicious survival jobs? Any like really gems? Um, earlier in my life, yes. Out here, no. I managed to make it work. Um, like because I because I was an associate producer at Barrington Stage Company, uh-huh. I that like helped you know pay my way. And there were like jobs I would do throughout the off season, which is like the academic year here. So I would teach, and I would you know direct readings and do small gigs, um, and then. Uh, go to Barrington. You know, I think the survival job was like creating musical theater factory and like living in the back of a gay porn studio while trying to create <laughs> Pulitzer Prize winning musicals. And that was uh-huh. sort of the bizarre, the quintessential New York experience. If yes, you will. The, the sole survival jobs. Um, what about, so speaking of our, our trailblazing a bit, um, as you kind of forged this path and you said, I'm not seeing myself as an actress at this point. Were there role models that you looked up to? Were there people that you said, I kind of want this person's career or I want to steal from these kind of person's career and make three and put it together? Is there? Did you have ideas in your head of who you wanted to be? Well, I still didn't see a possibility for myself to be on the Broadway stage or in mainstream media. But I knew that like in my heart that trans narratives like should no longer be relegated to the downtown. And that's like mm-hmm. something I felt really passionate about. And I had long uh, adored Kate Bornstein, who was like a phenomenal gender theorist, writer, performance mm-hmm. artist, playwright, actor. Um, and she actually came and spoke at UC Santa Cruz when I was 18 and was one of like the people that unlocked for me my identity. And um, so, you know, I knew that there were like other people who had made a career for themselves as trans performance artists. Um, but I, I was like not interested like i said in being fringe and i was mm-hmm. like i want to make space for these narratives in in the broadway scene and, and and in mainstream television 
So when I finally decided to transition medically, and I was sort of like, like flying by under the radar, even though I knew who I was and I had been out to friends, but I just didn't feel like I could safely transition in the New York theater scene while I was trying to build a reputation as a director. I thought no one would take me seriously because of things that I heard in rehearsal rooms and just like general attitudes around transness that were not cool at the time. Mm. And so I thought like, oh, if I'm going to transition publicly and like be go like going through this whole process in front of these people who I'm, I'm trying to impress and build a relationship with, then let me just figure out like the best way to get them on my team and take control of the narrative. And so I thought like, I'm going to speak to my community in the language my community speaks. I'm going to do a show about it. And that's when I wrote my first solo show, which was called One Woman Show. And it told the story of my decision to transition like through my, you know, life before that moment and incorporated some, you know, songs, some were original, some were covers. And, um, and that was my first time on stage as an actor in hmm. at least a decade. And, uh, and it, and I got really great responses to it. And I was like, Oh, this is really cool. And as that happened, I sort of acknowledged to myself, like, wow, all those times I had gone to Broadway shows and I'd been like dissecting them as a director. I was also secretly so jealous of the people on stage mm -hmm. and the fun they were having and and like wanted to know what it was like and so I thought like well if I can like do a solo show like maybe I can like play a role and then I uh, was cast in this um, show at the New York Musical Festival where I played the Statue of Liberty and it was sort of iconic and fun and I was like yeah this is great I'm kind of enjoying this and then mm -hmm. I booked Difficult People and it was like all right this is my job this is what I do now mm -hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm not only an, an actress, but I'm like a groundbreaking television star who's like changing the game of comedy, you know, like boom, thrust into it. And so, um, yeah, it was cool. So cool. It's just so cool. And now do you find a lot of younger actors today who may be forging their own unique paths? Or have they reached out to you and put you in that position of, of role model? And what has that been like if that's happened to you? Yeah, I think a lot of folks and especially like trans artists, you know, look up to me because of the the trail that I've blazed. Um, I also think that specifically young trans artists are are forging their own paths in new ways because mm -hmm. they there's things that are available to them that were not available to me at their age. And there's also things that they're like claiming for themselves that I didn't even have the wisdom or knowledge or know how to claim for myself at that age. And that mm -hmm. everything from, you know, demanding representation and training programs, um, demanding access to aud auditions with songs in different keys and things like that, like um, to demanding like fair representation and um, an authentic storytelling, which I also, you know, demand and, and uh, you know, work to provide for the community. But um, yeah, I think that I'm like a role model in some ways, but also the ways that generation gaps work in, um, in the trans community. Like I'm uh -huh. also looking up to the young ones. I think that's not just the trans community. I do think that's the the generationally happening a lot, maybe especially because of social media, which I want sure. to talk a little bit about. Um, from your your my limited interaction with social media, which for me, social media is like a, an evolving platform. I'm I'm excited. I'm terrified of it. I'm trying to get on it a little bit, but it's it's really scary to me. Um, you seem to wear your activist hat very proudly uh, on social media. What do you feel like, especially for young people who are trying to figure that out, what do you see as the responsibility for a young artist like entering the business today to be vocal in public about, I love that you said maybe having their ethic, what is their their personal artistic ethic? How public should they be? Is that necessary? Is that optional? How do you feel like for a young artist they should navigate that for themselves? Well, you know, as I said before, like before I identified as anything, I identified as a performance artist. And what that means to me is that the work that I do is crafted. Um, and, and that implies um, not just things on stage, but like the way I choose to move through life and present myself to the world, which is all social media is. It's, mm -hmm. you know, an opportunity to, to curate a, a version of yourself for public consumption. So, um, yeah, there are other things that are great about it, connecting and forging community and all that stuff. But ultimately, it, it's um, it's performative and it's, you know, not three dimensional like, mm -hmm. you know, human interactions are meant to be. So what I would say to folks is like, I mean, first of all, enjoy it if it's good for you, if it's mentally healthy. You know, I think I just heard the phrase 
digital self-harm, which I was like, wow, that's so real. And I understand that so deeply. So be aware if you're engaging in social media in a way that is causing harm to yourself or others. Mm. Um, but also, you know, think about the person you want to be in the world and manifest that person in the ways that you engage online. And, um, you know, that's part of you crafting your performance of self. Such a good answer. All right. So now I'm going to challenge you with an even harder question. I asked this very question of my best friend, Alejandro, who's an EDIB consultant. He said it was unfairly hard. So I'm going to try it again and we'll see how we do. Okay. But what about in that three-dimensional rehearsal room? So if we're talking a little bit about what you put into social media, what about in the rehearsal room where I'm curious of like, what do we see or what do you personally see a young person's responsibility in speaking up for themselves and or others in a rehearsal room when, for instance, a microaggression occurs? As especially, I think, you know, a lot of our young listeners are maybe 17 to 25, right? So as you're in that, that place of your career where you're trying to figure out what it is to make art and you're worried about your own career, how, what do you see, see as a responsibility to say, this happened for this other person or this happened to me and I want to correct the system if I'm a young artist activist to sort of speak up. And I can just say personally, I, it's something I've always struggled with of there've been times when I wished I had spoken up. There's times when I wished I hadn't, when I did, you know, yeah. it's like, how, how do you see sort of a responsibility of a young artist navigating that world? Well, I think it's, it's definitely layered, you know, because there are power dynamics at play when you're in a rehearsal room um, where you're obviously like trying to, gain and maintain approval. And so I think there are ways that you can move through the world ethically that help you build those relationships and also hold people accountable. And it probably starts with coming from a place of compassion and forgiveness and just assuming the the best of people and that that folks are well-intentioned even when they mess up. I think right now we're in such a, a like a, a heated kind of lash out moment um, sociologically that like we really just kind of thrive on like attacking and calling out and demanding change without trying to understand like, where people are coming from. Um, so I think um, I believe if you see something, say something. It's important to advocate for yourself. It's important to advocate for others who might be experiencing some kind of oppression or microaggression. But the way you do that can be, um, you know, tactful, can be gentle, can be caring. Um, I would say if it's something that happens to you, um, make sure you document it. And then uh, like personally, take a note of what happened, the time and date and place. And um, and and then talk to the right person. Talk to an, the, the stage manager or an advocate. Um, if there's no one like you in the show that you're working on, if you are the only trans person or the only person of color, first of all, that's a problem. And mm -hmm. you know, if you have the opportunity to engage in that conversation when you're getting involved with the show, then have that conversation either through your agents or in person to say, it's really important to me that there be someone here who shares my identity and who can I can go to with concern and find out who that person is. Um, if it's something you're witnessing happening to another person, you know, I think it's important to check in with that person and see if if they need support in advocating for themselves. Um, and also then again, find the appropriate time to go to the appropriate person. I just had an experience where I was working with some very powerful people and I noticed that one of these people who has been a great ally to me and, and, a, and a real supporter of my work, what happened to be kind of consistently interrupting my collaborator on a project who is a black woman. And, and so I, I, I texted him and I said, Hey, can we chat? And then we like, he called me, we had a talk and I was like, I just want to bring this up. Cause I've noticed it a couple times that, that like you have a tendency accidentally or otherwise to interrupt this person when she's speaking. And I notice how it disempowers her. And I, I know you wouldn't want to do that. And so I just wanted to make you aware that it's happening so that you can be more mindful. And he was mm -hmm. like, wow, thank you. I didn't even understand that. Like, it's so helpful to hear that. And I will, it won't happen again. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. like a, I didn't blast them on social media. I didn't drag them in front of other people. You know, I just like found the right time and place to have a conversation. Like they say nowadays, like calling in as opposed to calling mm -hmm. out. And I think that's really helpful, especially if you're trying to maintain relationships. Absolutely. And I, I can think of so many times in my life where I've had those really helpful situations where I was called in and I went, oh my God, I'm able to learn. And that's so wonderful. That's stuff I think right. it's really hard. Important to be aware of. Um, what about maybe a little bit lighter if we talk about mm -hmm. acting for television? So you did all this yeah. training in 
different experimental and we've got Buto and we're doing critical dance theory, which I, I have too many jokes about critical dance theory. I'm like, what's positive dance theory? But fine. But, <laughs> but you're doing all this different stuff. That, and then all of a sudden you really have a career in TV acting. What was that yeah. leap like? How did you make that, that, you know, sort of jump? I mean, it was an audition that, that worked, you know? Um, I remember the moment when I was auditioning for Lola and I came in and I was like doing, you know, and I had like done, like, I really, like, if you get the opportunity to do in-person TV auditions, which is like rarer now, I still mm -hmm. recommend doing your own self tape so you can like understand how you're coming off on camera and what choices you're making. So I had done my own like kind of self tape um, study of the audition material that I, like I said, had broken down into my Buto beats. I knew my way through the material. I went in and did the audition and I did it in the TV acting way where I was speaking very quietly. You know, and, and trying to be controlled. And then yeah. the director, the the um, casting director was like, I think you can be bigger. And I was like, bigger? Great. <laughs> you know, and, and then I booked Lola. I just did the scene big and, you know, uh -huh. and um, and yeah, it really, you know, it wasn't like all at once. Boom. Now I'm a TV actress. I was still running a theater company. I still had directing mm -hmm. commitments. I was still transitioning, you know, like I um. I have still been working to become a full-time TV actress. It's really been mm -hmm. like, you know, fits and starts and really great moments when it happens. Um, but um, but it has been like a whole new world that I really love and didn't mm -hmm. ever, I thought I was so like ride or die theater all the time for all time. And now kind of understanding the accessibility of it, the ways that like people, mm -hmm. you know, you can reach such a broader platform with it at times. The fact that it doesn't always have to be perfect because you're shooting it and cutting it and editing it and you can have mm -hmm. multiple takes, which you just don't get that on stage. Um, you know, there's things about it that I, I really I really love. I love, honestly, being in a makeup trailer and having my hair and makeup done instead of having to do it myself yes. backstage in a little mirror, you know. <laughs> Um, and other than maybe that initial over adjustment to whisper everything, are, are there any adjustments that you do feel like you really have learned or things that you've gone, oh, okay, so now that I've been doing this for a little bit, when I do TV, I am going to approach it differently in this way. Or is it like, no, just do your thing and it's their job? No, I'm still still learning all the time. Um, I'm learning from experience by watching the work that I do and seeing what I would do differently. I also learn from watching the legends that I work with, like getting mm. to act with Judith Light and seeing how mm. she, you know, relates to the camera. And um, yeah, I mean, there's so many things that I've I've learned about just like sensing the camera as an audience member and understanding that like when you're with your scene partner or partners that that is another scene partner with you mm -hmm. in the space. And, and there's ways that you have to peripherally include them, you know, in your awareness while still being fully present in the scene as the actor. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's, there's so much, um, you know, the like business is so different. Like when I was doing Lola, I'd be like, I'm going to, in this scene, I'm going to like grab this plate and put it here and pick up this glass and rinse it there and do it, you know, and if I were an actor in a Broadway show, I would do it the same way every mm -hmm. time. And what I realized, like none of these other actors have business. They're just sitting here playing the scene. And then I mm -hmm. watched the edit and literally you can't see anything. You know, I'm doing a whole <laughs> choreographed behind the counter, everything. There's none of it, you know? Um, so yeah, that's something interesting. And for those maybe who are a little newer to the world, when Shakina says business, she means like her physical vocabulary, like the way that she's moving, what she's doing on stage or what she's doing on the TV world. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the business, the business people, you know, some of our young listeners, we need to. No, it's just like parents, stuff you, you know? do. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. What you do, yeah. the biz. Um, what, what about, I'd love to hear a little bit as, I mean, you have so many of these hyphens, um, and we love a multi-hyphenate here. So we have a lot of, um, multi-hyphenate artists on the thing. Um, we've had a few actor writers who've sort of given that advice of like, go write your own story, which I think is such yeah. a great advice as someone who has done that and is currently doing that. And is, do you have any tips on, on how, like how, how do you sort of tell your story on, on stage? Any difficulties, anything you kind of want to share about that experience? You know, I actually just taught a class on, um, autobiography as activism, which was really yes. cool because I think there's yeah, like that a class right uh, now. Yes. Yeah. There's, <laughs> you know, there's, um, something buried in your point of view that no one else in the world sees. And mm. by illuminating your point of view for other people to see the world through your eyes, you can help them, you know, see the world differently. And that that's radical. That's revolutionary. Mm. Um, in terms of how to tell your own story, I honestly just told my story. Like I literally had um, 
like events where I invited friends over. Um, I think Elizabeth was part of one of these back in the day. I, um, I had what I called story time with Shakina and I would just like put out my phone with the voice memo recorder on and sit folks in a circle and be like, Hey, I just want to tell you a couple stories about like my coming of age, or I just want to tell you a couple stories about like my relationship to faith, or I just want to tell you a couple of stories about like the way my, my gender has evolved. And I would tell these stories and I would record them. And because I was with friends, I would speak very freely but I would like sort of then afterwards ask like, okay, what parts really stuck out to you? What parts jumped out to you? And I would listen to them back and and then transcribe them and and sort of work with them to to be like, how can I craft that into into a solo show? Um, mm. You know that that worked for me, and I've and I've had students do that as well. I think we speak very freely when we're just talking as opposed to when we're sitting down trying to write. You have a different authorial voice, which is also mm-hmm. great, but may, might not feel as as natural. Um, and then also, you know, just think about a bracket in time where you can give yourself a beginning and a middle and an end. Some experience of transformation where you have been changed or you have helped others to change. And that's a story. You don't need to get the whole thing in one show, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to just realize, I think, that there are a lot of pieces in you you know it's not all in one did you ever find yourself as you were like now retelling stories that you had openly and personally shared saying i'm not sure that i'm ready to show this to the whole world was there ever stuff that you go that i'm gonna keep that just for me and i'm gonna or i'm gonna change that or i'm not gonna let that be quite so real to life yeah i mean there are still stories that i've like haven't told and there's still stories that i'm figuring out until how to podcast, tell you think yeah right until now. this podcast yeah <laughs> no but um but but uh one of the things that for me is so important is that I um, I don't like to tell dramatic stories from my life until I can find out how to make them funny. Um, mm. Because I don't want to like just put more like trauma porn into the universe. That's not my agenda. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I am a survivor of sexual violence, but that did not that was not part of manifest pussy until I could figure out how to land a joke in that story, mm. which was very hard. And so I knew in iteration after iteration of that show, like, uh, I'm leaving out this piece that feels so major to understanding who I am. But mm. until I can figure out how to talk about it in a way where it's, it's, I'm not making light of it, but it's sort of couched in a comedic framework that allows me to move through it, you know, keeping mm. myself safe, but also like letting the audience off the hook from having to feel the, the magnitude of what I experienced. And um, yeah, so that's just sort of like a process that I go through trying to figure out how to find the the humor in the heavy. How, how much of that has worked its way through the music theater factory? Because th- as you're saying that, I'm thinking of um, watching Strange Loop. And I thought that was so beautiful as it it would do that. Like moments that could be really dramatic, I found so poignant. And like, I wasn't always sure, should I be laughing? Should I be crying? Is it, wh- what is the right, you know, quote unquote right? But what is the the desired response here? And, and I thought it rode that line so beautifully. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, yeah, the music theater factory. Well, you know, musical theater factory has in its short life gone through itself many transformations and iterations. And when it originally started, it was like me inviting a group of friends to make new musicals in the back of a gay porn studio in Midtown Manhattan. And that was pretty radical. And what it's become now is like a major nonprofit artist sort of service organization that, you know, provides resources to um, musical theater makers of color and trans musical theater makers to mm-hmm. sort of, develop work from voices that we're not hearing enough of in the in the community and um the the sort of like guiding principle is um that liberation can be joyful and so um i think that you find that as like a through line in the work that that we bring in is that you know these are artists who are discovering their voices. They're discovering what they have to say to the world. They're fighting against systems of oppression. But um, even in the you know, most traumatic stories that we might tell from time to time, there is this streak of liberatory joy, which I think is mm. so essential to healing our world. Oh, so beautifully said. Um, I just can't. Also, I love the name Music Theater Factory because I feel like it's everything colleges are trying not to be called. Like it's always an insult when you're like, "Ugh, that's a Music Theater Factory." They just churn them out. Right. But I love right. it with the place. I'm like it's like get get that that work into the world. Yeah. Well, when I was living in LA, I would drive by like in downtown 
LA, there were all these like abandoned Sears buildings and stuff and like these old mm-hmm. factories that were just, and I was like, one day I want a factory that makes nothing but musicals. <laughs> so that's how Musical Theater Factory started. I love it. It's like little elves making their toys, just putting putting plays together. Yeah. Um, what about teaching at um, NYU or, or teaching wherever you've taught? I'd love to like, what, what do you feel? We talked a little bit about sort of how the generations are different, but what do you feel like you have learned from your students? What have you learned from the experience of, of teaching? Wow. You know, um, I have learned that the world has changed. I have learned that young people have sensitivities that I did not have growing up, whether it's because of the situation in which I grew up or the situation in which they're growing up. Mm-hmm. But there are there are awarenesses and um, and dynamics of um, perception that are so heightened uh, today. Um, in a way where I felt like I had to be a wrecking ball to be heard and be seen mm. when I was, you know, a, a teenager. And and now I feel like there's just um, a lot more awareness, which is really exciting. Um, and also, like, like I said before about the ethics and the and the imagination that um, I never really understood that those things had to be taught and cultivated because I guess I just came into the world with a lot of both. And Mm -hmm. I, and, and I got a lot from my family and my, like my mom and my aunt and my grandparents were all really strong advocates for, you know, um, the rights of others. And so I just, I came into the world like charged with this ethical point of view. But, um, but like I said, you know, in the, in there's there seems to be like less opportunity for imagination especially like people coming through public school systems and certainly less opportunity for for exploring ethics uh, unless yeah. you're like fortunate enough to have that as a class or something do you find they're just more more risk averse that there there's more fear in in that exploration of the, of ethic yeah, I think there's like, I don't know if it's risk averse or fear or if it's just like black and white thinking that like you can't do uh-huh. that. You can't say that. You should say this. You can't do that, you know. Uh-huh. And um, and I've, I've had like, you know, pretty um, tense conversations with some students around around things like that, uh, especially mm-hmm. in terms of like representation, what we can and can't put on stage or what, what kind of stories we should or should not tell. And um what the role of theater is, which in my opinion has always been to like agitate, you know, yep. in order to like create a, a more perfect world. And, um, you know, and I get that because when you grow up in a society that's telling you over and over again, what you should and shouldn't do to be a good person and to be a, a good participant in, in media, um, you know, you internalize those messages and you develop like a strict moral code, but that uh-huh. moral code has been placed on you. You know, it's not the moral code that you have developed for yourself through rigorous questioning. And so that's why I think developing an ethic is so important because you really have to consider things for yourself, how you, what you, what it makes you feel to be engaged in these types of conversations or these types of scenarios and then determine what is right for you and what is not right for you and be able to articulate the why behind that. And it's, it's just, it's more complex. It's more nuanced. It's so true. And it does seem like uh, activism and theater have always had such a, um, uh, they share on the Venn diagram so much of what is agitating the world and was pushing us in the right direction where they don't share is in that black and white thinking versus the nuance and the grays that art always is trying to discover. We're trying That's to right. go, all right, we know the black and white. Let's explore that middle place. We're, where right. is the place where we're not as totally sure? And that's really hard in a, you know, because that sort of is antithetical in some ways to some parts of social justice and some parts which are pushing this versus this. It can't be just this versus this in art. It has to find some, yeah. some, some of that friction. Yeah, I recently tweeted about this because I was like, I was getting really frustrated with what I saw as a lot of accusations around causing harm. Um, and, and I, I wanted to just pose the question, like when we say something is causing harm, do we mean it's making us uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. is that harmful or is that Mm -hmm. just discomfort? And there are times when it's very clear something is causing harm and you can like see the A to B to C how that happens. There are other times when art is, is provocative and disturbing and makes us uncomfortable and triggers us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can look at something differently or feel something differently or even work through trauma toward a kind of healing. And 
if we are too quick to shut that down because it makes us uncomfortable and say that it's causing harm, we're actually robbing ourselves of the experience of going through a process that has been developed by an artist for us to journey, you know, mm-hmm. through that discomfort into something else. Oh, so beautifully said. Um, as you're thinking about um, that young 17-year-old, 18-year-old, maybe uh, one of our students, or maybe someone who's right out of school and sort of beginning their journey, is there like one thing that you go... take this with you. This is a little piece of advice I would love for you to to take throughout your career and and into uh, whatever path you end up forging. You know, something that has always been a guiding principle for me is that you don't need permission to make theater. And um, so if if this is what you care about, if this is what you want to do with your life, don't wait around for someone to give you permission and opportunity. Go and make Mm -hmm. it for yourself. Create it where you can, how you can. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and learn and grow from there. I love it. Um, anything that you want to plug from today? So I know we talked about a lot of things that are upcoming for you, but anything specific, if listeners loved you and they want to see you in things, hear you in things, is there anything that you kind of want to hit and plug? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, your listeners can um, find this play that I wrote on Audible. It's called Chonbury International Hotel and Butterfly Club. And it was mm. supposed to premiere last summer at Williamstown Theater Festival or two summers ago now. It was canceled because of COVID, obviously, but we had the opportunity to record it for Audible. And it's like... Um, it's like stage door, the play, not the manor. Um, but, it's, but it's a bunch of trans women recovering from gender confirmation in Thailand. And it's a beautiful hotel comedy with a cast of 13, nine of whom are actors of trans experience. Um, and it's on Audible and it's really precious and it won the Drama League Award for Best Audio Production. So mm, please mm. check it out and leave a review if you love it. If you hate it, just shut up. And um, again, it's called Chambori International Hotel and Butterfly Club. You can leave the negative reviews on our podcast because we'll take any review at this point. So just Great. the negative reviews. If you love Shakina's thing, put it on a positive. If you think it was bad, put it on our thing, but still give us five stars and we'll, we'll love that. Um, that's awesome. And Shakina, I think we can follow you um, at Shakin's. This yeah. is on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter and Instagram. Yep. I have a TikTok, but I don't use it. And uh, I'm leaving Facebook as soon as humanly possible. Oh, we're all on the same page there. We love it. Um, thank you. So we'll put all that in the show notes too for people to see with the um, Audible play and, and all the cool. things that are happening in your life and your website and all the things. Um, we just, a huge thank you for coming on. It was such a pleasure to get to chat with you today. For sure, Charlie. Yeah, so much fun. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you loved talking to Shakina as much as I did, or I guess you were more listening to her. I was doing more of the talking, Um, but I just find her to be so wonderful, fun and funny and smart and just a a quintessential artist in so much of what she does. Um, For today's deeper dive, I just want to talk a little bit more about that idea of discomfort that Shakina brought up. Uh, I think it's a really interesting conversation to have with with yourself in the context we were discussing today, just for your life, um, which was sort of more a little bit about microaggressions and sort of, you know, generally how you want to live in the world. But I also think it's a really valuable thing to think about specifically as an artist during your art making. Um, Some people, maybe not all, but some people believe like one of the central missions of an artist is to provoke or to make the audience uncomfortable. So you can try to make them think whether or not you believe that as a principal mission. It's certainly the case that in the course of your career, you are likely going to have to be a vessel for some difficult and uncomfortable conversations and situations. Often dramatic works center around these kind of topics and finding your personal comfort level with what you can and can't do, or maybe what you are and are not willing to do is essential. Um, I also think a broader point Chikina was hinting at, which I would love to co-sign and expand, is that sometimes it is in that discomfort is where the magic is really going to happen. To force a sports analogy, I know you're all sick of all my sports analogies. I'm going to do it though. In sports, we often talk about the difference between like being hurt and being injured, right? Like if you're hurting versus are you injured? If you're injured, you should not play and you should seek medical attention, right? Nobody should play through a bad injury. But not every sore muscle or bruise or ding is necessarily something that sends you to the bench, right? In fact, some of the most historic, amazing moments in sports involve pushing through some kind of adversity, whether it's fatigue or it's a snow game, or we can think of Jordan's flu game as a a famous example, because we're going to talk about basketball every episode. We have to multiple times. Um, In the art world, this is really true as well. Finding that ability to work through discomfort is often where we find people's most interesting work. We obviously and assuredly have to find a place where if something is going to reach a place of trauma, we're going to seek safety and absent ourselves from the situation, like we talked about in Ali's episode. But 
not all discomfort is necessarily unsafe. Um, I talked about this a little bit in Tom's episode as we talked about adjustments. So often when something is going really well, a student will drop out of it because they're scared. Maybe they got scared by their own brilliant choice that they made or they're just uncomfortable because they're trying something new and it feels uncomfortable. It's scary. This is totally normal and totally okay that you're feeling that, but it is something to actively work on as an artist. How do you live in that uncomfortable place? Again, we're talking about garden variety fear and not trauma until you can master it and then do remarkable things. We have defense mechanisms for a reason as a species. And if there's something in place that you need to avoid, you can absolutely do that for yourselves. But if you don't need to, then your work is often about actually dismantling those defense mechanisms that are hardwired for survival, but are not necessarily helpful for your art making. So something to think about, how do we all live in that place of discomfort a little bit more? Hopefully you're not discomfortable now, but in fact are comfortable because you've made it through another episode of Mapping the College Audition. If you enjoy this episode and want to hear more, you better hit that follow button. I'm sure you already have. So if you've hit it before, don't hit it again because that'll unfollow us. We don't want that. Um, but we would appreciate it if you were to rate and review us where you found us. I suggest five stars if you love Shakina's audible recording and want to give, give us some love too. And maybe that ironic five stars if you want to write a negative review for her, but leave it off her page as suggested, which I think is a very specific and polite and ornery fan. And we appreciate that. All are welcome here. Um, you can also reach out to us with questions for the pod at mailbag at mappingthecollegeedition.com or reach out to Megan and me directly. You could grace us with a follow on the Twitters or the Instagrams. I'm at charmer7, that's C-H-A-R-M-U-R-7. And Megan Marie is at Megan Marie 2014, M-E-G-H-A-N-M-A-R-I-E, and then 2014 is how you get to 2014. Um, if you're interested in working with MTCA for help with your individual prep for your college edition journey, please check us out at mtcollegeeditions.com. You can also follow us at Musical Theater College Editions, at TweetMTCA on Twitter, and coming soon to TikTok. It's really happening out there. Just like Shakina, we have a TikTok, but we have not been TikToking as much as we will be in the future. It's a promise. Um, to my young artists out there mapping their journeys, it only takes a minute, so clean up your damn room. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.